Hello and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast. For the next hour, your hosts will go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam, the provocateur. So Cam, what film are we looking at this week? We are going to take a look at the 2011 film Hannah, directed by Joe Wright, a little bit of an art house take on your standard action film, spy action film. And one of my favorite things to do every week is to read the synopsis from letterbox.com. Uh, this week, you'll be pleased to know it's a very short one. Nice. Hannah, adapt or die. A 16-year-old girl raised by her father to be the perfect assassin is dispatched on a mission across Europe. Trapped by a ruthless operative, she faces startling revelations about her existence and questions about her humanity. Boom. There we go. Concise. I like it. And, uh, and unlike some of the other ones, it doesn't give too much away. No, that's also a good point. It teases you with just enough that you go, that sounds intriguing. Yeah, what is this film about? Exactly. I don't remember them ever actually saying she was 16 in the film. Maybe I missed that bit, but that's the first time I think I've actually seen her actual age. Yeah, I don't know that it was dropped in the movie, but if you look up synopses for this movie, they always mention that. So I wonder if that was in the original notes they sent out like to journalists for their reviews. And uh, that actual fact is probably only on the medical forms or something in this movie that I didn't notice. Yeah, like if you pause and zoom the DNA sheet, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, right, Cam, so initial thoughts on the film? Yeah, so I saw Hannah in, when it was in theaters, and it was released with, I would say, a fairly quiet <laughs> amount of fanfare surrounding it. But it was one I went and checked out, and I remember having very minimal expectations going in. Joe Wright is a director that I'm not a big fan of. I think I've only liked one of his movies. Um, spoiler, it was Hannah. And everything else he'd done, like I saw um, Atonement, which I didn't care for. And since then I saw Pan, his Peter Pan reboot sort of thing. That was pretty bad. And um, yeah, he's just not a director I've come around on. He did The Darkest Hour, which won Gary Oldman an Oscar. Another movie I didn't really care for. That was the Winston Churchill uh, biopic. Um, wow. Everything he's kind of done has left me cold, but Hannah was one where I went in and I was really knocked over by how electric some of the directing was and just the very oddball tone that I'm looking forward to diving deeper into. Uh, yeah, me too. I actually hadn't seen this film. I do distinctly remember the artwork and perhaps a trailer around the time, but it wasn't something that piqued my interest. Uh, I had seen this actress before. I think um, I'd seen parts of Atonement, Mm -hmm. or and that's about it but so yeah i never saw the film so this was my first watch for the podcast and i really quite liked it actually i was quite surprised i didn't think i would i read the synopsis and a little bit about the film before i watched it and i really got into it it is a weird movie huh yeah weird's a good word i i have a lot of notes about it yeah. which i'm quite looking forward to getting into sort of the into the weeds with you mm -hmm. but um how how did this film do? Give me some sort of background on the film. Hannah had a really interesting genesis where it was a writer, Seth Lockheed, who was attending Vancouver Film School in my neck of the woods. Scott, this is the first time something to do with a movie is related to where I'm from. Well, it's about time we had something from your neck of the woods. I'm, I'm done having jokes about England made against me. So. That's right. So yeah, uh, Seth Lockheed uh, is from Nanaimo, which is a ways away from where I am in Vancouver, but nonetheless, you know, BC guy, British Columbia. And so he was attending film school and wrote a early version of the Hannah script. And the script kind of started to get him some attention. It made the 2006 Hollywood blacklist. For the people that don't know, the blacklist is a list of the best unproduced screenplays on the market. And Hannah got a lot of attention for that. And ultimately what happened was, Danny Boyle, who did 28 Days Later, Train Spotting, he did Slumdog Millionaire, he jumped on and was very interested in developing this. This was around 2009. And he worked on it for a while and then ultimately left. He just couldn't really do much with it. He just felt like it wasn't for him. 
And then Alfonso Cuaron jumped on. Alfonso Cuaron, of course, did Gravity, the third Harry Potter film, Aroma. And he worked with it very briefly. Then what happened was Joe Wright jumped on. Now, Saoirse Ronan, the lead, had joined the movie before Joe Wright jumped on. I'm wondering if she got him involved because they had worked together on Atonement and she had really had a big breakthrough there. And so her reuniting with a director she'd worked with in the past to great success makes a lot of sense. So Wright signed on and the screenplay kind of went through a couple of permutations. They brought on uh, the writer, David Farr. Now, David Farr, mostly known for TV, but he um, was the creator of the Night Manager miniseries, which was hugely acclaimed with Tom Hiddleston. Scott, did you see or hear of that? I didn't really watch too much of it. My better half uh, was a big fan of it, though. I think it also starred Hugh Laurie, if I remember right. correctly. But yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, like it was hugely acclaimed and... Something that if we were covering espionage or spy-related you know, TV series, we would probably cover. But David Farr came on, and he worked on the screenplay quite a bit. And uh, Seth Lockheed did come back and work on it as well. It was very much kind of an amalgamation of the two of their work. So this wasn't a case of you know, the fledgling young writer just getting rewritten by the pro and knocked out of the process. He was involved to the end. And since then, the two have actually gone on to create a Hannah TV show, which I haven't seen, but it is both of them involved once again. So it seems like the two of them did come together on a a unified vision of what Hannah could be and have just carried that forward. Um, As for the cast, yeah, as I said, Saoirse Ronan was involved very early, but Kate Blanchett was actually developing another project with Joe Wright at the time, and that project collapsed. I don't know what it was, but ultimately uh, Joe Wright offered her the script to Hannah and said he really wanted her to play the villain type role. And she said that um, she was very nervous about it. Like as a role, it seemed very strange and she didn't quite know if she could do it. But I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen a bad Kate Blanchett performance. So I think she's just being very humble. Yeah, I would say so. But I, I get her point about it being a strange role. Yeah, definitely. Although she did do Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull before this. And that was a very strange role as well. I think strange for different reasons. Yeah, true enough. And so Joe Wright has some interesting quotes about why he wanted to do this movie. He said, first up, the reason he wanted to do it was as a reaction against a kind of prevailing sexual objectification of young women, which he saw, for example, in movies like Kick-Ass and some of the other female-led action movies of the time. And I think that's a totally respectable reason to do it. I I can totally understand that. But then he kind of follows up as uh, he said... He was wanted to work against the traditional testosterone-driven, misogynist, right-of-center action movies that have absolutely no regard for their subtext whatsoever. <laughs> and that latter quote, I picture him like flapping a scarf around his neck and storming away. <laughs> absolutely. Exactly how I pictured it when you read it to me there. Yeah, like that one, you're like, okay, ease off, buddy. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we get the idea. It's okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. I was with you the first half. The second half, you kind of lost me. But hmm. I, w- I wish he would be a little more specific about his examples because I would like to know what he's referring to because there were some really good, you know, male-driven action movies that did deal with subtext at the time. So I'm going to assume he's pointing the finger at, I don't know, Triple X. <laughs> yeah, or he's looking to the past a little bit there, maybe. Sure, fair enough. But he said the major influences for this movie were fairy tales, obviously, which we'll delve into deeper, but also David Lynch. That is absolutely amazing you said that because they are two of the highlighted things I have in my notes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting that that actually is true because it means my brain works, I guess. <laughs> and so the movie had a $30 million budget. It grossed $40 million domestic, $24 international for a worldwide of $64 million, which, I mean, it's not huge, but it did fine. It doubled its production budget. It was fine. Just not the breakout smash that, uh, you know, maybe they hoped it would be. But it falls right in that kind of gross level that you've seen a number of movies hit that were developed into TV shows later. I think of movies like Frequency or Limitless, you know, movies that were modest successes, but there was enough of the premise there that worked that immediately they started developing them to become TV shows. Like, I can totally understand why they looked at Hannah and said that could be a TV show. It's like there's something there, but maybe the film was the wrong angle for it, basically. Right. Like the film doesn't support expensive follow-ups, but a TV show might 
you know, work for a different audience. This was the kind of film I would have thought had like a book or something like that that was based off of. It had that sort of feel to it. It was actually nice to know that it was, you know, basically a, a, a fresh script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like for the box office for that year, I mean, the number one movie was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, which sure. that was a juggernaut. Um, number two was Transformers Dark of the Moon. Oh. <laughs> and number three was Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's funny because we go like, well, at least Hannah did okay. And it's like, you look at two of those movies and you're like, come on, we live in a horrible world. (laughs) People were queuing to see Pirates of the Caribbean 7 or whatever the hell it was. And people just missed this film. I don't understand it. But then, to be fair, I was guilty of seeing both of those in the theaters that year. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I saw all three. So (laughs) I'm, I'm as guilty as all the people I'm pointing the finger at. At least you spread a little bit of love there. That's right. That's right. And so some of the other spy-related movies on the list that beat out Hannah. At number five, you had Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. At number 10, you had Cars 2, which is a spy movie. (laughs) At number 47, you had Johnny English Reborn, the pride of your nation. Am I right? Hell yes. I can't wait to cover the Johnny English uh, series. I I have a special place for Rowan Atkinson in my heart. I do too, Mr. Bean. Mm-hmm. At number 81, Spy Kids 4, All the Time in the World. And at number 85, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. There was one movie um, that it did beat, and I should say that um, Hannah fell at number 96 for the year, right between The Darkest Hour, not the Joe Wright movie. It was like a teen YA kind of adaptation, I think. It's funny, though, that it was beaten by a movie called The Darkest Hour, which Joe Wright would then make a couple years later, and uh, just beat narrowly the Footloose remake. And I know you're a big Footloose guy, right? Uh, There was a Footloose remake? There was, actually. Craig Brewer directed it. Craig Brewer, who did My Name is Dolomite and uh, Black Snake Moan. Yeah. My Name is is Dolomite is a funny film. It Um, was, yeah. I really enjoyed that, but I... Was the Footloose reboot any good? I didn't see it. I mean, the original wasn't any good, so it can't be that much worse. But Cam, you've got to cut loose. Footloose, yeah. And so there was one movie that, uh, that was spy-related on this list that I noticed that Hannah did beat. And at number 112, you had a movie called The Debt, which is starring Jessica Chastain. I don't think anyone's really heard of this movie, but I've actually heard it solid and one that we would probably cover on this podcast. We'll have to add it to the list. Yeah. So there you have it. That's kind of the story of Hannah in terms of its um, development and, uh, you know, box office run. Um, Okay. Yeah. So as I was sort of alluding to earlier, I had the foggiest about this film, apart from maybe seeing a poster and a bit of a trailer back in the day when it came out in 2011. But um, I was very much looking forward to sitting down and watching it after you, you spoke to me about it. And I have a full two pages worth of notes, but I think really to summarize, it was a really quirky but fun film. Yeah, it really is like a strange hybrid of things because it has the fairy tale elements. It has this spy kind of espionage story. And it also has a really solid coming of age narrative as well. Mm -hmm. That was like, my notes kind of went through this evolution of, I, I noticed the adolescent to adulthood sort of transition throughout the film and then you also look at like you mentioned the david lynch inspirations Mm -hmm. do you have any more information on that because i have some notes about what i thought he used as it sort of as inspiration Where, where do you feel he took inspiration from david lynch like joe wright's not explicit about what he took which i think a lot of great directors are they're like oh yeah the influences are there if you look for them but i'm not going to specify exactly what they are Mm. but I look at moments, for example, I'll give you one, um, when the Kate Blanchett villain character goes to recruit an assassin to take down Hannah, and she goes to this bar in Europe where this assassin, um, played by Tom Hollander, who I can't wait to talk about you know, further down the road, yes. but um, she goes into this bar, and it's like they're recreating like a fairy tale play on this stage. It's very weird, and it feels very like... David Lynch, like something you'd see in Blue Velvet. I think of the Dean Stockwell karaoke scene from Blue Velvet, and it almost feels a little bit like that. Yeah, that's definitely something I, I saw. Into. I, I saw more sort of the 
more overt fairy tale connections in that scene. But now you say it, there is definitely David Lynch influence there. I, mm-hmm. I, I sort of cottoned onto the David Lynch thing a little bit earlier on in the film where mm-hmm. Hannah is escaping the facility in Morocco. I mean, not only have you got that great Chemical Brothers score in the background to sort of propel you through the whole thing, but there's also this, like, David Lynch likes to use electricity. Yeah. That's one of his, like, favorite tropes. Um, it's, a, it's in a lot of Twin Peaks, especially in um, season three, which I know you're going to be tackling soon yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, yeah, there's this bit where you can hear the, the fuzz of electricity and, it, like, it, it zaps her. There's, like, shots of her going through the crawl spaces and, like, cuts her out of the scene and cuts her back in with the sound of electricity. And I was like, That's, that is David Lynch all over. It definitely um, but, is. But as I say, overall, I, I really enjoyed the film. I was, I was not expecting much out of it because I got the impression it was a bit of, a, a bit of an art house film, like you said it was earlier on. And I, I seem to think of Saoirse Ronan as an actress who only ever does highbrow films. She does a fair number. I mean, she's multiple Oscar nominations for movies like Brooklyn and Little Women. Although she's done very few movies that I didn't enjoy. Like, I think... She's very good at picking prestige films that also are incredibly entertaining. I mean, maybe she just has the magic formula and she knows what she's going for. I, I don't think I could ever see her in like a Marvel film. I don't think she'd want to do one. I don't no. think that interests her. I think this is probably the closest you'll see her to a, you know, action type role. So I suppose that's probably an opportunity to start talking about Saoirse's performance then. I mean, the first thing I noted was she must have gone through some physical training to do this film. Yeah, I mean... I think it's always tough to make someone who's, you know, slight and very small to look very tough on screen. And she pulls it off a hundred percent. Like, I think she trained her butt off for this movie because she's doing action scenes opposite. It's like some very large dudes and Eric Banya. And it is entirely convincing. Like I really give a lot of credit to her for just putting in all the time, but also, um, you know, Joe Wright for directing these sequences to really make this character feel like this force of nature. Absolutely. And there's this, she also sort of invokes that kind of uh, Jason Bourne, Bourne identity spirit, I would almost say, where like she's going through the languages at the beginning of the film, much like Jason Bourne does in Bourne Identity. Mm-hmm. And that sort of like, she just has that built in response to well, there's people all- attacking her. There's a lot of Bourne influence in this movie as well. It is another character who doesn't realize that they necessarily have all these, because we find out that this character has been basically, it's a super soldier type idea. It was kind of built in a lab. So she has this whole background as to what makes her the perfect operative that she's not aware of, like Jason Bourne who has amnesia. So it is her kind of learning about her own basically makeup throughout the movie. And all these skills come instinctual to her throughout. So there is a lot of that born element. But yeah, like just the way she pulls off these moves and all these moments, like Bourne, it's not flashy. It's not played as a character who's showing off. Like James Bond kind of shows off, whereas Bourne and Hannah do not. And yeah, and that's exactly sort of the opposite of uh, Henry Cavill's character in Man from Uncle who would literally wink at the camera whilst he's doing all this sort of stuff. Napoleon Solo basically gets up on that stage and recreates what he's going to do in advance so the audience can really bow down at how awesome he is. Does he take the dwarf up with him as well? <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah, I could see it. I could see it. But back to, just back to Saoirse before we sort of tap into anyone else. Mm-hmm. I, as you say, and you, you bought it too, I totally bought the whole idea of her being raised in the wild um, and that sort of like wide-eyed view of the world, especially at the start of the film, when she sees like the um, like the AC-130 plane flying over, and yeah. she's like completely confused by the whole thing, but like loves it. And then by yeah. the end, she's this killing machine. Yeah, I love when she screams when that plane goes over. It's such a great moment. Feels organic to the character. But all of like her exposure to the world, like you get the excitement. Like I love that this movie has this coming-of-age idea for like a kid who has been raised in the wilderness their entire life coming into the bigger world and being excited by what they're seeing but at the same time having all this programming it's a nice little play on the coming of age story and that she's going about very normal situations going on dates uh, hanging out with a friend but bringing like the skills of an assassin to it and it's a lot of fun I think Shersha Ronan one of her big skills is even though she is very young she has a real like old soul kind of quality 
And so you can buy that this character is a giddy 16 year old going on a date, but is also like world weary. Yeah, because she's lived in like a, a very harsh environment from the age of three or four. I mean, yeah, when you're growing up in a cabin where your father attacks you in your sleep to test your assassin skills, I mean, that's something. You'll start singing. Your dad's like, nope, none of that. No music in this house. I love the moment right at the start of the movie where she's hunting the deer. And I like how Joe Wright plays with moments where she like disappears just to show off how good an assassin she is. But she takes down the deer and then her like father comes out of nowhere and just starts attacking her. Very like um, Batman Begins on the ice, (laughs) like Liam Neeson. Ah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good call back there. The only other thing I I noticed about her sort of basic story is it reminded me a lot of a a video game, a very recent video game I played before I watched this film. So in my head, I felt like this is also maybe taking bits from the game, but it turns out the game came out way after, Mm -hmm. um, which was Horizon Zero Dawn, which is about a girl who is raised outside of a tribe in the wilderness to become like a, not an assassin necessarily, but you know, to uh, to look after herself, basically, mm-hmm. and she hunts and things like that uh, under the guide of a, a very well-trained assassin. Basically. Oh, interesting. It's also a little bit reminiscent of one of the Bourne movies we're going to cover uh, in the future. So I think Hannah actually beat that movie to the punch, but the idea of the training in the wilderness sort of concept. Um, I got to ask you, does Eric Banya's character win the Father of the Year award? He, uh, okay. Yeah. When I trust me when I say he's not winning any awards for best father of the year. Uh I I would not want to be raised in that house at all. Uh, there is no joy in that man's life. I remember Arnold Schwarzenegger reading a quote from him talking about raising his kids, how he would make them take cold showers because it made you uh. feel alive in the morning and I was like what a monster. <laughs> I, I could just hear him like marching orders every morning, right? Hunting training and she's like six. Yeah, and I look at Hannah's father, and I'm like, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a very <laughs> doting father in comparison. Yeah. Cold what a showers nice guy, are yeah. Yeah, I, I don't mind a cold shower, sure. Versus the father that's like attacking you all the time. He reminds me of Inspector Clouseau's like house servant who's always attacking him. <laughs> Didn't they like mention that as well in the Tomb Raider films? They might have, yeah. I seem to recall. But yeah, I mean, I can just imagine him being the kind of guy that like, at the age of six, gives her a bow and says, right, go get dinner. <laughs> Pretty much. And I love when he does battle her on the snow there. And then he's like, drag that deer home yourself. It's like, wow. <laughs> Where, and that, that's something that actually I noticed on my second viewing. A little bit later on when they're in the cave together, there's a moment where she wants to sort of hug up to him to sort of show affections. I think she wants a little bit of affection herself. Mm-hmm. And the closest that they've, like, I'm guessing they come to that sort of form of physical affection is that she just sort of kneels down and gently leans into him. Yeah. She, I mean, she doesn't feel like she can have a hug or a kiss or anything like that. Yeah. And I mean, this Eric Banya character, um, Eric Heller is his name. He's a former uh, assassin and who knows what else. He is a rogue asset in the words of the Kate Blanchett character. And so we don't know how much um, maybe PTSD or programming is affecting his ability to raise this girl like i would guess a lot yeah it's like he's just devoid of fun by the time he gets to well taking in the mother and 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 the daughter i guess Mm -hmm. um you you could argue it was all done to make her stronger but it's not i mean he saved her from being assassinated maybe or, or or disposed of and maybe is the correct term but at what cost Right. Like it's someone who I can totally believe that Eric Heller did a lot of horrible things throughout his career working with Kate Blanchett. But um, he strikes me as someone who saw this kid as his one chance to do something decent for the world. But even then, his approach to doing so was a little warped. Yeah, I mean, Eric Heller as a character reminds me of one of my neighbors when I was a lot younger. He... Um... I think he was ex-RAF or ex-military, but there was a union flag in the back garden. And he, would have, he had three kids, and he would march them out parade style every morning, salute the flag, and then march them back in. And not to music or anything like that, he would just sort of like general marshal them through, shout at them a little bit, and then march them back in. And I understand discipline as much as the next guy, but 
God, you got a bit of a childhood too. Yeah. And you can understand why, you know, Eric has this transponder out sitting out and he's told Hannah, if she ever wants to join the outside world, she just has to flick this switch, but nothing will ever be the same. And I think for a lot of kids, they would be tempted to not hit that switch, but you can 100% understand why Hannah flips that switch. Yeah, and you can see like she's craving things from the outside world that her dad won't give her. Mm-hmm. Music. Um, she looks through the fairy tale book that's hidden under her bed. There is like a so- loyalty though, because you see throughout like the movie, Hannah's ultimate mission is to reunite with him in Germany. So she's really hopping across Europe to meet up with him. So there is that, that loyalty to her father, but it's definitely um, couched in a lot of very questionable parenting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I understand it was probably the best outcome for her being alive still, but uh, yeah, not, not a good childhood. Do you think Hannah's future is brighter with Eric Heller dying later in the movie? So I had this debate after the film was finished with, um, with my better half because uh, she watched it with me. Mm-hmm. Like, does she go on to do anything else afterwards? Because she's, she, obviously spoilers, but she's, she kills the, the bad guy, uh, Kate Blanchett's character, and just says that like, she wants to be left alone. But she has all this training. I can't imagine she's going to be left alone. I can't imagine so. Like, I think this was probably maybe conceived as what could have been an art house Jason Bourne kind of franchise where you'd have a trilogy of Hannah films that would be very unique and not really blockbusters, but be kind of a, you know, thinking person's action franchise. That doesn't sound too bad. No, I would have been down for it. I mean... This is a movie that I can 100% understand if people don't like it <laughs> because it is very strange, but I, I really am in the bag for it. Yeah, I, I, I would generally consider myself a, a movie goer for big releases, big films, tent poles. Art house films don't generally get me to the, to the theater that often. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm sad I didn't get to see this film because these are the sort of films that prove me wrong. I remember just being stunned in the theater during the entire prison break sequence with the Chemical Brothers score. I was just like, oh my God, like the style that Joe Wright has in this movie. And he's a director who, in all his other movies, um, short of Pan, which is, that one's just a debacle. I don't necessarily hold that up as an example of his work because I just think it went wrong across the board. But his other movies are very restrained, very chilly, very um, very reserved in their pace and tone. And this movie, you hit that, um, that prison break sequence, and, I mean, it's a crazy sequence we should talk about further, but um, just the electricity, the energy of the editing and the music and all that, I was like, why isn't Joe Wright doing a James Bond movie? I think he could be incredible. Yeah, it seems like he's got the chops to do it. That's the sort of perfect scene you've seen in Bond or, or Bond film. Yeah, and you've seen artier directors flirt with Bond before. You know, Mark Forster did Quantum of Solace. Sam Mendes did Skyfall and Spectre. I think he would be an interesting choice to see further down the road. I don't know that he has any interest in doing it, judging from his quotes about why he did Hannah. But nonetheless, this prison break sequence is one of my favorite action scenes I've seen in, in some time. And I mean, this is, you know, 10 years ago, more or less now. And this is, this, this, you could put that into No Time to Die, and it would seem... Perfect. Oh, yeah. And I have a funny story, actually, about this prison break sequence. Um, So (laughs) the score for this scene is incredible. Just incredible. And I had it on my iPod at the time. I don't think it was my iPhone yet. I can't remember. It was a while back. But a bunch of us from journalism school went and rented a Airbnb up in Whistler. Whistler's, I think everyone probably knows because of the Olympics. But Whistler is a skiing resort town um, just in B.C., And so we went up there for a weekend and a bunch of us um, stayed up later. There was like three of us, I think three or four. Um, Tyler, uh, our friend, mutual friend Tyler was one of them, uh, who is, um, hosts the Subspace Transmission Star Trek podcast with me and Scott, you've appeared on there yourself. But Mm -hmm. we were sitting up the, and a bunch of people had gone to bed. They were out. They were done for the night. And the Hannah score kicked in on the iPod and was just blasting throughout the (laughs) the airbnb and tyler and i were in tears laughing just because of how obnoxious this was for everyone who was trying to sleep it's like a thumping bass score going on people were just like shut up 
And it's so high energy. It's like... (laughs) Did anyone wake up to it? No one ever mentioned it, but we were just in tears laughing about it. (laughs) I I could just see them waking up and being like, are these guys on E? What's going on down there? We've got like the um, the, uh, glowing soothers around our neck. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. You just... It, all the lights are out. It's just just got the neon things on. You're just dancing around for some reason. <laughs> I just came down from milk. What's all this? In like body paint? Yeah, <laughs> yeah just the whistles. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my funny uh, Hannah-related story. But no, this prison break sequence, the way it kicks off, I think the direction is incredible. Just the scene where you have this interrogator who's kind of trying to play her friend. All you're seeing is a close-up of his face. But then Kate Blanchett sends in a replica of herself to talk to Hannah. I've never seen that in a movie before. No, and I I didn't think it was anyone. I thought it actually was Kate Blanchett until we had to sort of turn around on the other actress. It, it did get me. Um, who was the actress that played that character? I am not sure, actually, to be fair. I, I just I swear I could have recognized her from something. I'll have to look her up. Oh, I've got it right here. Her name is Michelle Dockery. The name doesn't ring a bell to me, but uh, maybe to you. I'll have to have a dig. But yeah, she de- I definitely recognize her, but that... I know why. She's actually on Downton Abbey. You say that as if I've ever actually watched that show. Wait, Scott. To the best of my understanding, anyone in Britain, the world shuts down when it's time for Downton Abbey to air. Like, businesses close, schools are let out, everything. Isn't that the case? It's just another, another case of your bias. Another case of your bias, Cam, I have to say. I am hurt and disappointed. <laughs> I'll have you know, the only show that we shut down for is Doctor Who. Oh, I thought you were going to say Coronation Street. <laughs> I was going to go with Coronation Street, but I didn't know if anyone actually knew what that was. I was like, <laughs> who, the, who the hell is Vera Ducksworth? I don't know. <laughs> that is a character in Coronation Street, I think. I haven't watched that show in 15 years, but for some reason it's in the back of my head. <laughs> so, so anyways, yeah, so that actress is from Downton Abbey, but I thought she was great in that scene, selling like the fear of that character, but also letting down her guard to fatal consequences. <laughs> yeah. And she sort of sold that sort of nervous energy they were going for. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I, I wrote down about that scene, the word just kinetic. Yeah, it really it just, is. It, it just, yeah, it just, it's high, high octane and you're able to follow the action, which is something I, I like to point out because I, I like to poke at directors that can't do it. As I hate action scenes where you have no idea what's going on. Yeah, like Joe Wright can really direct action well. Like there's a uh, fist fight with um, Eric Banya in like a subway station that's like fantastic. It's the sort of thing I like yearn to see in action movies that usually let me down nowadays. I, I was going to mention that scene when we got to Eric Banya, but I guess we'll get to it now. Mm. Was that one take? It was, yeah. I mean, I, there may have been some stitches there, but yeah, it is all portrayed as one take. I get the the clever camera work. Sometimes they cut past a pillar and that's actually two scenes put together and that sort of thing. But it, it does feel like it's one shot. And I have to say that is a very good action scene. It's incredible. And Joe Wright got a lot of attention for the movie Atonement, where he had a one take Dunkirk sequence. And that became mm-hmm. what a lot of people talked about coming out of that movie. And you can see that he's basically taken that and pushed it to the next level of this very complex action sequence between Eric Banya and three or four assassins that plays out in one continuous moment and is really incredible. Okay, now I haven't actually seen Atonement. I've seen bits of it. But are you telling me there's a scene in the film where Kira Knightley fights off four people in a German underground station? (laughs) Um, I wish. Okay, because I was going to go rent that film tonight, if that was the case. Yeah, no, I, I think Keira Knightley may have done that in the movie Domino, but that's about it. Is that a spy film? No. Okay. I guess I won't be seeing that one then. No, it's a Bounty Hunter movie. Oh, okay. So you'll have to tune in for Bounty Hards. <laughs> Is that once we've finished, um, what was it, Horse Hards? Yeah, <laughs> or Stallion Hards, I think. <laughs> Uh, I think I prefer horse hearts. That's actually funnier. <laughs> um, okay, well, we're on the topic of Eric Banya, so let, let, let's go with that. Um, obviously, he's playing the retired uh, spy agent, I guess. It's never really established what they do apart from maybe 
assassin work. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they engage in espionage. I imagine they probably do because I think it's all probably quite tied in together. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, but um, how do you think he didn't carry in the sort of father figure throughout the film? Eric Bain is a really interesting actor who doesn't work enough. He's someone who pops up, reminds you he's great, and then just kind of disappears again. But I really like what he brings here because Eric Banya is just somehow inherently likable. Every time I see him in a movie, I just like him. And so you throw him in this role, which is very harsh and kind of a taskmaster type of character. And yet I feel sympathetic to him just because he has this sort of wounded look in his eyes that even though he's a kind of a monster and has destroyed this child's life in many ways... <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for him. I mean, I don't know what her life would have been otherwise, considering her genetic background. But nonetheless, um, when his, you know, has his big face off in the playground and is executed, I feel bad about it. He's not a character that I go like, you know, oh, this this guy is a, you know, he's got to be put down. See, I I I found the sort of the conclusion to his story a bit strange. The whole like slow mo fight scene, and then then you get the shot. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I really got why that was pitched that way, but it, you know, it is not a house film. Maybe he wanted to do a different take on the typical sort of fight to the death scene. It's definitely not like a big pumped up glorified death, is it? No, it's very, I mean, he gets a sort of winner over the henchman characters, mm-hmm. uh, which I do want to get onto in a bit. But uh, uh, and then he just gets shot by Kate Blanchett. Yeah. It's... Very cold. <laughs> There's like a real coldness to a lot of the executions here because we see that echoed as well with what happens to Kate Blanchett at the end um, where Hannah just is like look, looming over her with a gun and just says like, I missed your heart, bang, <laughs> done. And it's just credits. And you see that echoed as well at the start with the deer. You know, there's no mercy in this world. And also when uh, Kate Blanchett's character kills the grandmother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, which... Um, for those for continuity heads out there, it's a bit of a weird shot because she Kate Blanchard shoots her from the back, and you see the shot, but you don't see the bullet exit. But then later on, when Hannah visits the house, there's a bullet hole in the framed photo. Yeah, that's a good call. Good yeah. call. Um, I don't, I don't mind that sort of stuff. I imagine it. I I don't know what the rating of this film is. It's probably a twelve A for the UK. I don't know what the Canadian rating would be. Uh, I think 14A. Right. And I, I don't think you can show full-on headshots in that sort of rating. I don't think they worry too much about Canadian ratings, to be honest with you. I don't think anyone cares. That worries me about your cinemas. And is, is anything go when the kids are around? <laughs> I mean, kind of. But uh, it's just like, I just don't think they worry about cutting off a Canadian audience based on our rating system the way they do in the States. Uh, I see. I was going to say, because like, I've been turned away from a cinema before for being underage for an Austin Powers film. So right. they're, they're worried about ages here, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, not so much here. Fair enough. Yeah. But anything else to say about Eric Banyan? No, I think he's really good. He pulls off the physicality of the role, and it just makes me wish he would work more. I, I've had a weird sort of experience with him. I've, the first two films that popped in my head are probably Hulk and Star Trek 2009. Yeah, and neither of them are particularly great outings for him. Well, they're not big performance showcases. The one for him that got him the big breakthrough was a movie called Chopper, where he played this Australian criminal. And it was a pretty solid movie. Um, but he's always felt a little underserved because he also showed up in Troy. And no one went to see Troy for him. And no one walked out of that movie talking about him. They came out talking about Brad Pitt. Um, so it was kind of a bit of a thankless role. But I've always liked Eric Banya a lot. Yeah, if I see him on a list of actors, I won't run away from the film. Yeah, I'll always give him a chance. He's, not, he's never really done me wrong. I just have never been particularly impressed. Mm-hmm. Okay, Cam, so before we get into Kate Blanchett's character, because I want to talk about her, but I do want to have a quick chat about Tom Hollander's character, Isaacs. Yeah, what the um, hell is up with that character? <laughs> am I right? I mean, could you be any more German? <laughs> He feels a little bit like the Germans in um, The Big Lebowski. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what it is. I couldn't put my finger on it. It's like they've seen that film and just copied the whole tracksuit thing. And then, and then you've got the two skinhead friends. And he's like very hypersexualized as well. Like he's a very interesting take on, because the character, the way he's introduced, 
he is kind of that Jason Bourne operative they introduce in every movie to chase down Jason Bourne. You know, the Clive Owen character, for example, or like Carl Urban in one of the sequels. Like that is the Tom Hollander character, basically. But like, he is bizarre. Like they did not play this character as generic. He is a very oddball, weird ass character. Yeah, it's like you've got, okay, we need to have Kate Blanchett's weapon, almost. Um, that's a trope from film, so, you know, odd job, chores, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then let's just do something completely weird with it. Let's make him a, a hypersexual German guy who listens to trance music and, you know, owns a nightclub with uh, strange acts and, and dwarves walking around. He's a very strange character, and yeah... I- I mean, I love this character. This character brings this movie... I mean, it's already alive, you know, when you have the prison break sequence and all that stuff. Like, you are carried along on the pulse of this movie. But then they hit you with this character, and you're just like, like, what? And he's walking around, like, whistling this, like, fairy tale children's kind of music the whole time. He has a sequence where they're holding a family hostage, where he's just walking around whistling, swinging a pipe. And I was like, this is gold. I love this character. Yeah, for some reason he kind of reminded me of the main character from Clockwork Orange. Yeah, you know what? Clockwork Orange was another influence on this movie. Oh, I am, I am, <laughs> I'm knocking him out of the park today. I, I am picking up on their references. I'm in tune with this film. You are the Hannah of spotting references. <laughs> <laughs> now, the question is, would you rather be raised by Isaacs or Eric Heller? Um, Eric Heller by a long shot. <laughs> really? I don't know what kind of childhood I would have under uh, Isaacs. I mean, you'd definitely be in therapy. Oh, yeah. At least it'd be interesting, though. It would definitely always be interesting, and you could hang out at that weird bar and take part in, like, fairy tale productions. Exactly. But yeah, overall, what a strange character. It also, I also made a note. He has to be one of the most out-of-shape assassins I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I love that Tom Hollander is in no way physically threatening. <laughs> and yet, the character is somehow terrifying. Yeah, it, it, it just goes to show, you don't need to have a six-pack and muscles to be you know, a force to be reckoned with. And Tom Hollander, for those that maybe the name doesn't jog to mind anything... He played the secondary villain in the um, Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, the second and third one, where he kind of became the main villain in the third one. So he wore like the powdered wig. So that is probably the biggest pop culture uh, work he's done. Oh, that's where I know him from. There you go. There I go. There I go admitting to the fact that I've seen some of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. That's right. Sorry, (laughs) listeners. I know I've gone down in your estimations. I'm sorry. Pirate Hards coming soon. (laughs) <laughs> there's so many spin-offs subscribe now <laughs> so yeah i mean tom hollander in this movie i just thought was fantastic and i mean let's jump over to Kate blanchett because this character is insane as well yeah the big bad wolf as i wrote her down as yeah there's a lot of elements i mean the woman walks out of a giant wolf's head at near the end of the movie. I mean, it's really on the nose and I love it for that. Um, you, you've got bits in the film earlier on where she's like polishing her teeth to the point of where her gums are bleeding, uh, which she would sort of take as if she was sharpening her teeth. And if that's not an overt reference to things like a wolf, then obviously, yeah, exactly. End of the film, she walks out of a wolf's head. That is hitting you on the head with symbolism right there. Oh, yeah. Like, I love that they are not subtle with the Kate Blanchett character. Even things, though, like the wolf imagery is carried throughout, obviously, with that character. And yeah, the sharpening her fangs, basically. Um, but also, there's a little bit of Wicked Witch of the West stuff going on as well, because there's a real emphasis on her shoes. These, like, green shoes that are somewhat uh, familiar from uh, Wizard of Oz. See, I I noticed the shoes reference and actually her demise is kind of brought on by her shoes because she slips on her shoes down the ramp. Yeah. And that allows Hannah to get the upper hand. But I I couldn't figure out what they were trying to get at with references with the shoes. So, okay, so Wicked Witch of the West, I understand. Makes sense. I mean, the David Lynch stuff is very strong. And one of David Lynch's um, all-timer movies is Wild at Heart, which has a heavy streak of... Wizard of Oz imagery, like tied throughout a kind of young lovers on the run from the law type of movie. 
And so that is an odd fitting. And this is very similar where it's the Hitman stuff tied with fairy tales. But I do think the Wizard of Oz stuff there is maybe a little bit as an homage to Wild at Heart. I'll have to add that to the list of David Lynch films I haven't seen yet. It's really great. To be fair, the ones I have seen are literally Blue Velvet and A Razor Head and Firewalk With Me. So I probably have quite a few to see. Yeah, you've got a few. And they're all almost all worth the uh, journey. But I do love the Kate Blanchett character because her voice, her accent in this is very strange. Um, it's, I guess, Virginia-type accent, but it's played cartoonish somewhat. Yeah, it's almost as if she's overdoing it. I couldn't keep up with her accent at times because I felt like she was switching it for people, which I think she was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I couldn't really keep a hold of what was her actual baseline accent, but I think that's probably what, the, what they were trying to do. Yeah, this character is not played as a realistic human being, kind of like Tom Hollander. And mm-hmm. so I don't worry too much about the fact that it's a performance that's really <laughs> swinging for the stars. But uh, like just her ability to carry herself through these scenes and just be the center of your focus. Because like Kate Blanchett is very imposing in this movie. She's a very fearsome character. And you buy that she is the one in charge of everything. And you understand why people are scared of her. Exactly. Much like, you know, uh, Hannah or Eric Heller, she also seems super capable of what she does. Oh, yeah. 100%. And you see her being brutal multiple times through the movie, executing people. And, you know, there's a family she captures near the end of this movie that I don't have good uh, sense of how that outcome went. It was something that sort of irked me at the end of the film where I thought, like, why don't I know what happened to them? And I just gave it a second thought and I just realized that they're probably just all dead. Yeah, like, do we need the scene where they're gunning down, like, a family of four? No. This film's crazy enough as it is. I don't think we need the gratuitous level of violence like that. Um, but you don't need it, really, ultimately. It's, it, you know that once they're in the hands of those, well, three by that point, I suppose, because one of the henchmen's dead, mm-hmm. that they're probably goners. If you are captured by Kate Blanchett and Tom Hollander in this movie, the outcome is not positive. No, no. Just look at the, uh, the guy who owned the hotel in Morocco. Or also look at the guy who is living in that fairy tale house in the abandoned amusement park. A setting that I loved, by the way. It, it, when, when this film, you feel like you've got an idea of what it's going to do next. It just throws you into a house with upside down mushrooms. Yeah. And just like dinosaur models everywhere and like old rides. I love a like shootout in a old abandoned amusement park. It's incredible. It's got that sort of haunting, creepy feel of, say, like Chernobyl that's been abandoned. Yeah, it does. And there's a real sense of Germanic uh, fairy tales throughout this movie. And that feels like a very Germanic fairy tale setting. Yes, which I think probably been, brings us onto the topic of fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I wrote down some of the ones that I sort of obviously noticed. Uh, say, like Snow White was the, the performance that was on the stage in the nightclub. Yeah. And there was a little bit of Red Riding Hood as well with the big bad wolf. What else did you, did you spot, Cam? Well, it's funny you mentioned Red Riding Hood. Um, I'll touch on that one just initially because um, so much of the movie seems modeled on that where it's this little girl who lives in a cabin who ventures out into the bigger world and is pursued by wolves. Like that feels like the, the basis. Like I'm pretty sure that was the core one they were looking at. Mm. But there's also references to, I think, Three Little Pigs as well. Um, they reference, I think someone actually references Little Pigs. And another line they do mention is, someone says, to grandmother's house we go. So there are definitely on-the-nose allusions to, you know, Red Riding Hood, Three Little Pigs, and a few others. That Those two quotes are actually quotes I have written down. And they're both said by uh, Tom Hollander. Who's whistling. And the wolf has been portrayed as whistling in some of the uh, media that's been produced from Red Riding Hood stories or Three Little Pigs stories. I believe the Disney Three Little Pigs, the wolf is whistling. I may be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. Also, actually, Peter and the wolf. I think the wolf is whistling there, too. They must have just sort of gone with this sort of a basic idea of a, a spy identity, the, 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 the gist of this story, maybe that it is Red Riding Hood, and then just tried to throw in as many other references as they could. But then at the same time, it doesn't feel like they're beating you over the head too much with it. No, it just makes it feel very fresh and original. Like, whenever they ha- work in, like, a fairy tale reference, 
it just feels like a movie I've never seen before. And that is so rarely the case. You and I are going to cover so many spy movies where we're going to be like, oh yeah, that scene reminded me of this movie or this scene reminded mm-hmm. me of that movie. And within Hannah, there's so many moments that I'm just like, I- I've never seen this before. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bizarre film in all the best ways. It is. And, you know, a lot of it is this also, you know, tied to the fairy tales, a coming of age thing of like, you know, a young woman joining the larger world. And we see that through a family she meets up with. And the parents are Olivia Williams and Jason Fleming. And they're driving their motor home with their two young kids through Europe. And Hannah joins them, often unbeknownst to the parents, but kind of bonds with the family unit. And that's her first kind of, you know, glimpse of what humanity is. What did you think of this family? I think I hated every single one of them, except maybe the young boy. Really? I actually found them very entertaining. <laughs> I found them to be very realistic as people. And that's very good when it comes to writing characters. But I, I can just imagine, I've been to dinners with that mum and that dad. And oh. just, like, screamed. <laughs> Jason Fleming has the look of a man who is driving his family of four across Europe. Yeah, he, he is on his, his last, last note. <laughs> he just looks exhausted. Like, he, he just looks as a character, always, like, bedraggled. Especially when you've got your wife correcting your uh, grammar every other sentence. <laughs> like, I just love how much they do with very little. Because the parents aren't in this movie for very long. They only get a few scenes. But they leave an impression. And the two kids are pretty memorable as well. Yeah, I, I was... When I was watching the film the first time, I was sitting there thinking, when is she going to destroy that kid's camera? Right. And I, and I forgot about it. And obviously it comes back slightly later on uh, with Kate Blanchett's character. Because mm-hmm. um, she uses the photos to get the young boy to cooperate. But um, overall, like, I, I, I genuinely hated the rest of them. <laughs> you see, I feel like the daughter, um, who's played by Jessica Bardem, is introduced for you to hate her. Like, it's the kid who's basically now, nowadays, in 2020, just posting endless photos of themselves on Instagram, for example, like selfies, and just very shallow and superficial. But so much of what this girl says is, like, offbeat hilarious, because it's so out of touch with the world. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a scene, I can't remember if they were just speaking about Hannah, but she starts talking about her fungal nail infection. Right, yes. And she's like, I want to be a lesbian but like a supermodel one who only holds and, hands with women and marries a man. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I, that, that train of thought is not making a lot of sense to me, kid. <laughs> and yet I've met those people. <laughs> oh, I mean, 16-year-olds could be a little vacant. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shocking news from the Spy Hearts podcast. <laughs> but I thought their friendship was pretty touching, actually, and it has that like vulnerability to it that I think young kids have, especially in really good coming of age movies. I liked what they sort of evolved into uh, Sergio Ronan's character and, and the daughter of the family. And especially got that tender moment when they become friends and sort of hold hands and stuff. There's a little, little kiss there, but it's obviously more of like an affectionate kiss, not a romantic or, or anything like that. Or at least that's how I read it. Yeah. I would say it's more about Hannah's human connection than anything. Mm. Well, I mean, she hasn't, I don't think she's ever been able to, to kiss Eric Heller. No, I would say not. And when she goes on that date earlier and her date tries to kiss her, she takes him to the ground. That, that's one of those, those Jason Bourne moments for me. It is, yeah. And it's that programming kicking in. But also, Hannah is not going to connect with someone that quickly. Like, she's not going to trust someone. So I can totally buy why that is her response. Oh, yeah. Totally tracks with the rest of the film. And I just love how uh, you get this beat with Hannah and that boy she's been out on a date with where they're just sort of sitting there awkwardly, like two teenagers would do after mm-hmm. a date. And they kind of, he moves in a little bit and, and, and she gets a moment of where she actually gets to be a teenager. But I love the build up to that where he is kind of moving a little closer and you see her programming. Like she is instantly registering this as, is this a threat? Like trying to measure it moment to moment. Like, all the programming that's built into this character is all reflected through uh, Shersha's um, reactions. Yeah, and it doesn't, she doesn't need to, like, oversell it. It doesn't need to be some sort of score in the background to make you think that she's catching on. It's just little looks, and then bam, he's on the ground in a headlock. Yeah, it's a great scene. I really enjoy, 
um, so many scenes throughout this movie. There was a famous filmmaker um, who I can't remember at the moment, but he had a quote where he said, if a movie has three great scenes and no bad scenes, you can't do any better than that. And like this movie has three great scenes and more. Yeah, I would definitely go with more overall. There was another touch in this movie that I can't say I picked up on as much the first time I saw it, but I really did the second, which is Hannah's connection to music throughout this movie. Um, You have her asking about what music is to her father. And then there's a, you know, multiple scenes after she makes her escape where she encounters music in the real world. Like she goes to like a campfire where a woman is singing and she's like hypnotized by it. And I'd never made the connection the first time when they talk about how her mother was a singer. And like, this is Hannah's only connection to her mother. I don't even think she realizes it, but it's like built in from like a infancy to recognize music as connecting her to her mother. I am sat here with my mouth open as I hadn't made that connection. And then you just said it to me and it all clicks in my head. I did not catch it the first time. So I think repeat viewings reward this movie, you know? And my brain just went to, there's a bit, I think, where Kate Blanchett is listening to uh, voicemails from Mm -hmm. the mother. And she says that she was singing to her in the womb. Yeah. So, yeah. This is a good film, Cam. This is a really good movie. Like, there are layers... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what, what have we got ourselves into we're reviewing a really really good art house film yeah i honestly like going in i was like i wonder how this one's gonna play the second time and throughout i just kept going like i'm loving so much of this movie and i 100 understand why it's polarizing with people but it really clicks with me big time yeah i i almost want to make that shriek that hannah did when she saw the plane <laughs> Oh, I've got a little bit of interesting trivia note for you as well. The actor who played like the, um, I don't know, the groundskeeper of the amusement park or whatever, the guy who lived in the upside down mushroom house. Sure. Initially, I was like, he looks like that guy from the Harry Potter movies. I don't remember the guy's name. The guy with the long hair. You know the one I'm talking about. He looks like him. But I looked up the actor and it was actually the guy who played Hitler in Inglorious Bastards. It was? It was. What a strange turn. I know. His name's like Martin Wutke or Wutke. And uh, yeah. I was going to say, is he at least German? He is German, yeah. yeah, I would say so. Okay, okay. The only other thing I had was that I wouldn't want to do that swim. Oh my God, that looked awful. I mean, Hannah, her journey, you know, is being bounced around, you know, Morocco and then to Germany. But Eric Banya just seems to swim the ocean. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he like, he gets in in his underoos and then... There's, there's literally a whole turn of a day mm-hmm. in the movie. So he said, he'd he been swimming for 24 hours? Yeah, I would say so. I guess that's what spies do. Okay. You've got to get your cardio up, I suppose. How far do you think Roger Moore, James Bond, could swim? <laughs> about as far as the bar was, and that's about it. He needed that alligator sub. That's, that was his excuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's fair enough. I was going to ask, what did you think of the scene where Eric Banya lays siege to Kate Blanchett's apartment or house? That I found to be a very cool scene of seriousness in a in what can be quite a zany film. It's tense. Yeah, and it, and it's she she mutters something to herself like "get up and go" when she's trapped behind the sofa, and I imagine that's probably a, a motto they would say to themselves to get themselves moving because she for all intents and purposes, is trapped behind that sofa. And she manages to find a way out of that room. Yeah, she says, move, get up. And then, right. yeah, she gets out of there. And I was trying to remember, did we cover a movie where someone did that? If, if it wasn't us that covered this, I heard someone say this in a movie recently. Hmm. It's not in Goldeneye, and I don't think it's in Man from Uncle. So I doubt I, it's in North by Northwest. And in Born Identity? I don't, I don't feel know. like Jason Bourne would say anything to himself. Yeah, I feel that way as well. But it is something that had popped into my mind as something I have seen in other movies. But I felt like the fact that Kate Blanchett has to tell herself this shows you how scared she is. Because Kate Blanchett is a character when she walks into a scene, you're like, this person is scared of nothing. That, that helps heighten the danger of what Eric Banya presents. Yeah, and, and apart from that scene and literally right at the end before she gets shot, 
she doesn't ever seem flummoxed by anything. No. No, like everything is in control for this woman. It's very telling how spotless and immaculately put together her house is because it is very representative of her as an individual. Her wardrobe is impeccable. Like everything is just perfect. And so you get the sense that when something messy happens with her, it really will bring her down and why she gets more and more afraid by the end. Absolutely. And she's got that sort of swan nature, as we would call it, or be acting like a swan where you're composed in front and you're sort of treading water really fast underneath. You just look at the beginning where she finds out that Eric Keller is, is back and she just sort of plays it off as, oh, guess, yeah, whatever, takes the file and moves on. But you can tell in her brain, she's like, fuck, 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 fuck. And Scott, I don't know if you noticed, there was swan boats in this movie. Oh my God, this film just connects with me. <laughs> we are in Sepatico, me and this film. Oh. I think my last point that I'll just touch on, which we haven't commented on, is just how awesome that action sequence is in the, uh, at the docks there with the containers, the shipping containers. Yeah, it's a very real and gritty fight scene. Because there, there's three men that, I mean, I, they shouldn't easily take Hannah because she's trained. But, you know, that's a very daunting situation for anyone to be in, the three men attacking you in a, in a dock. And she's able to dispatch one of them and get away from the other two. And there's that part where there's the shipping container coming in on the crane that's coming towards her and the other guy. And it's so well directed. Like you believe that this crate is coming to knock them off that, off their perch. Yeah. The way it's shot, you feel like she is centimeters, millimeters away from being hit by that crate. Yeah. I mean, this was an era where they were doing a lot of um, shipping container fights. We had the one in Batman Begins as well. And I feel like, oh, there was the one in the A-Team. That was a big deal at this point. But this one is really well-directed. One of the better examples. In a film that's full of well-directed sequences. It is, yeah. So I think that brings us on to this week's question. Cam, does this film make the knock list? I think it does. And I think, for me, this is a polarizing choice for some people. Because I, I don't think this movie has universal acclaim, maybe the way that North by Northwest does. But to me, when I look at the knock list, I want some oddballs in there. And Hannah is an example of an oddball espionage movie that is really, really good. Yeah, I, I was worried you were going to say no, but it is also a yes from me. And here is why. I critiqued The Born Identity and I said it had some really good bits to it, but he wasn't really being a spy. He was sort of finding his own identity, the born identity. <laughs> but it feels like this film does everything the born does, but takes away all of the things I had against it. Well, it's far less of a studio production. Like born is an example of really good studio filmmaking that we still had some quibbles with, whereas this is very much a unique vision. And it's such a a perfectly self-contained film that was, as you mentioned earlier, you could see this going on to having a couple of sequels fleshing out the Hannah character some more. It ends on a button of her taking out the bad guy and moving on with her life, basically. Yeah. And I'm totally okay with this, with this just being a standalone movie. But uh, yeah, like this is a movie that going in, I was actually not sure that this would be something I would nominate for the knock list. But just when it was over, I ended up finding myself on Amazon looking at Blu-ray prices just to buy a copy of it because I didn't own it. And, you know, I have a funny story about that, actually. So with, the, with these movies every week, you know, I've been generally just grabbing them off Apple TV. And so I went over, turned on my Apple TV. Hannah's there. Purchase. I start playing it. And it shows up and it says, like, on film, do Joe Wright. And I'm like, that's weird. I don't remember that touch of having French like opening credits and then the movie starts and it's all in French. And I'm what? like, and I'm like, what, what the hell's going on? Is this a setting? So I go back and I look the synopsis of the movie on Apple TV is all in English. So I'm like, okay, like what's the problem? I go back, I restart still in French. And then I'm just like baffled what's going on. So I'm like, did I buy the French version? So I do another search. Cause I'm like, maybe there's multiple versions of Hannah on Apple TV. And I just, stupidly bought the wrong one there is only one version so then i jump off i go over jump onto my itunes on my computer 
And there it says version French. There is only a French version of Hannah on Canadian iTunes and Apple TV. How bizarre. And so I ended up having to rent it from YouTube, which was another annoyance because I bought it on my computer because I couldn't buy it on my TV. Then I jump over to my TV, log into my YouTube account, and it won't play the YouTube version. Oh, God. So How I did you end up watching it then? I had to go back and watch it on my computer. In French? No, I watched the uh, YouTube streaming version on my computer. Oh, right. Okay. So you didn't really get the full Blu-ray version. No, I didn't. So that's why afterwards I was looking on Amazon for the Blu-ray. I'm like, I want, the, I want to own this movie. <laughs> you deserve to own this movie, Cam. I paid $10 for streaming versions. <laughs> At this point, they should be sending you a copy of this film. No kidding. It would have been cheaper almost to buy the Blu-ray, I think. Joe Wright, I know you're listening. Hook my man up. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right. So it sounds like a yes from you. Yeah, I think this is a movie that deserves to come in like this is a really interesting take on a spy movie and i've seen our list you know i have we have a master list you know a glimpse behind the scenes here we have a master list of spy movies and there's not a lot of art house takes on spy movies and i want to include some because i think they're important to have for the diversity of the knock list and i think this is a great example so original and so strange that i really love this movie it's the sort of film I can see myself going back to several times. I was thinking the same thing as well. That's why I was looking at the Blu-ray price. Yeah, and I and the other thing for me is I made that massive connection of of this and and Born Identity. Yeah, I did it at the beginning when we first started talking about the film, and I know there's going to be more films where they have sort of a, a forgotten identity, you know, remembering your past type trope. Yeah. I think of all the ones we're probably going to watch, this is going to be up there with, if not the best, then one of the best. I mean, I have a hard time arguing against that right now. Yeah, because I don't know that there's many on the list that I'm like, oh yeah, masterpiece coming up of that specific you know, type of spy movie. And we, we quibbled about uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E. in a mm-hmm. sense, because we said, you know, I can't exclude this film if I'm going to exclude Born Identity almost. I think, that was, I think you said something similar to that. Yeah. Um, I'm almost glad that we excluded Born Identity now, having seen this film, because I think this film fits that slot for me. Yeah, same here. So, yeah, I'm actually surprised and excited to induct Hannah into the knock list. And if you want to check out the knock list, head over to letterboxd.com slash spyhards. We'll have the lists up there for what the knock list is, the movies that didn't make the knock list, as well as everything we've covered. So you can engage with us and, you know, argue against Hannah if you feel very strongly about it. So there you go. Exactly. Now, so that means Hannah is the third inductee into the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on Hannah is complete and filed as classified. Cam, what are we tackling next week? Yes, I am super excited about this one. Next week, we are going to take on the Ipcris file, the Michael Caine, Harry Palmer spy film, the first in a trilogy. I have never seen this movie. I have heard about it, but this will be the first one for the podcast that I'm completely going in a blank slate. I'm super excited for this one. I genuinely thought you said Harry Potter. (laughs) And then in my head, I was like, Harry, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. (laughs) He was only 16. (laughs) okay so don't forget to follow us discreetly of course at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week good luck among the shadows (laughs) 